0: The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would have been better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals.
1: Uh, My name's Nick, uh, one of the pastors here, particularly uh, with the uni students at seven. It's great to be with you this evening. Uh, We're in part three of our three-week series in Jonah, and uh, I've been really enjoying it. I hope you have as well. And so... uh, We should pray as we begin, so will you pray with me? Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word and you tell us uh, in the Bible that your words are like a sword that cuts right uh, into our bones and marrow and right into our heart, Uh, words that uh, change us and transform us uh, and go deep into us and cause us to trust you more and we pray that you do that work in us this evening. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm involved in uni student ministry, and uh, as someone who does that, I like to read books sometimes about uni student ministry. And uh, there's a good one by a guy called Lindsay Brown, and I had a copy this morning, but I lent it to someone. And it's called uh, Shining Like Stars. Shining Like Stars. Uh, one of the stories that uh, this guy Lindsay tells in the book is the experience of the, uh, the IFES Christian group in Rwanda during the genocide of 1994. Uh, Just to make sure we're all familiar with the background, uh, the IFES is a little bit like our own ES, it's a a Christian movement. Um, ES is a part of this wider international movement of Christian students. And uh, Rwanda, of course, is a small Central African country. And uh, it's important to know that Rwanda has two uh, main ethnic groups. The Hutu group uh, form a large majority, and the Tutsi the minority. And in 1994, uh, tensions that already existed between these two groups boiled over to the point that the Hutu government developed a systematic plan for the killing of Tutsis and moderate Hutus. And within 100 days, somewhere between 500,000 and 800,000 Tutsi people had died. It's about 84% of the Tutsi population at the time. Uh, the violence, of course, at, at times went both ways and the Tutsi-led uh, Rwandan Patriotic Front eventually gained control uh, and there were reprisal killings and the violence spread over the border into the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, Lindsay Brown's book, though, focuses not so much on that, that bigger picture conflict, but particularly on the experiences of the local Christian group leaders during that time. And uh, inevitably these these guys were caught up in the conflict and they were targeted in fact because uh, they preached things like in Christ there is neither Hutu nor Tutsi. You can imagine that wasn't very popular. Uh, by the end of the conflict most of the leaders of this local Christian group had been killed. And uh, one surviving leader, a guy called Antoine tells the story of uh, Barricading himself and his family within his home while extremists shook the gate, uh, having killed most of the neighbours and then debating whether it was better to throw a hand grenade in or just knock the gate straight down. It's an appalling time in history, a horrific time in history, and it raises a whole lot of questions about a whole lot of things. But for that particular Christian group, um, one of the most obvious questions is how student ministry could continue. Uh, how does God respond to that kind of evil? And in a a context where society is so divided, where there is such extreme um, polarisation between these two groups, how could ministry exist across those two groups? How was it possible to ever have a Rwandan student ministry again? How could Tutsis ever evangelise or encourage Hutus again? How could Hutus ever encourage or evangelise Tutsis again? You can imagine some of the, the trickiness there. Um, as, we, as we go into Jonah 3 and 4, I just want you to hold that story in the back of your mind. Because in Jonah 3 and 4, we actually encounter some similar questions about the limits of God's compassion upon the evil. Uh, Jonah 3 and 4 asks the question, Is it right for God to show compassion on wicked people? And if God does do that, what does that mean for His people? Are they supposed to do the same thing? Uh, these two questions emerge fairly quickly for us in chapter three, and so you might recall uh, a few weeks ago we looked at chapter one of Jonah, and Jonah got this commission to go to Nineveh and to cry out to Nineveh about their evil. Uh, Nineveh were known, you remember, for their love of cruelty. We had that uh, that picture on the screen. They're kind of the freeze of the things uh, that they did. They loved violence. And God cared about their violence, and so he was sending Jonah uh, to cry out over the city. However, uh, I guess what exactly God was going to do about it has been put on hold by Jonah's underwater adventure. And so we've, we've gone on this big detour. We haven't really seen what God's going to do. And so uh, at this point in the story, we resume that question. What is God going to do to evil Nineveh? And uh, I wanted to begin by that, uh, that story of Rwanda which is much closer to home because I think sometimes we think Nineveh it's a very far off place uh, and Jonah uh, seems like a bit of a I don't know um, a bit of a nong or something for the way that he felt about them Uh, it feels very abstract but when we think about uh, people who've been uh, in recent history gone through these kind of atrocities uh, those those questions about how do we respond to evil and how does God respond to evil become a little bit closer to home and over the next uh, 25 minutes, what we're going to do is unpack the story of Jonah's trip to Nineveh, and we're going to see how God treats these evil people. And now uh, we'll find that the story's full of surprises. And so you'll find on your handout, there's three surprises, and you get to um, uh, fill them out as we go, which is fun. And uh, we're going to begin with the first surprise, Nineveh repents. They all begin with, uh, Nineveh repents. So we're at verse four. Uh, in verse four, Jonah finally sets foot in Nineveh. And we read, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You notice uh, Jonah doesn't get very far into the city. He gets a day's journey in and he doesn't get to say very much, does he? Only eight words. But verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Uh, they immediately believe this word of judgment. It's not just one or two people, but it actually spreads across the whole city, even to the king and his nobles. And uh, the whole city takes the word very seriously. And the king leads the charge. Uh, He he takes off his robe and he sits down in the ashes and he calls his people to urgent prayer, desperate prayer, um, to radical social change. These violent people are called to To put that away not to do that anymore to become people of peace even the animals get involved it's remarkable isn't it Uh, they're so concerned that they get the animals to put on sackcloth and uh, i think one of the things that's striking here is that the ninevites are totally unpresuming in their response to god's word they don't say oh you know i guess if we pray a prayer and kind of uh, fix up a couple of things then uh, she'll be right No, it's an it's a, a urgent, wholehearted response. And they're really not sure how it's going to pan out. You notice what the king says? Uh, who knows? Maybe God will relent. Maybe he won't. What we see here, uh, I think, is another one of these beautiful pictures that we get in Jonah of, of people responding uh, that we don't expect to respond well to God's word, but responding really well. Like the sailors, unlike Jonah... These guys teach us what a real response to God's word looks like. Uh, It's urgent, it's humble, it's wholehearted. So if you're here tonight and uh, if you're not yet a Christian, you're thinking things through, perhaps you want to explore this afternoon, which is terrific. I reckon the Ninevites uh, provide a challenge for how you might respond to God's word and particularly a challenge to urgency. Um, Jesus talked at one point about Jonah and Nineveh and I just want to read you what Jesus said about the Ninevites uh, and I think he makes a similar point he said of his own generation the men of Nineveh uh, Matthew 12 the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here I think what Jesus is saying is that uh, his message that that news that he brings it's not news to put on hold Uh, The Ninevites model a right response and something better than Jonah is here. So if you're here tonight, not yet a Christian, if Nineveh uh, repented after one day in eight words, uh, what would it take for you to make a decision about whether to follow Jesus? I'll leave that thought with you, but back to the story. Nineveh has repented and uh, that raises the obvious next question, what is God going to do about it? What will God do with this cruel violent people Uh, will he relent from his anger and so surprise number two Nineveh repents God relents and so we're at verse 10 read with me when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened see God had said he would destroy Nineveh within 40 days And surprisingly, God, who is faithful and always keeps his word, doesn't do what he said he was going to do. Nineveh is spared. And that raises a whole host of questions. How can God relent and yet also be true to his word? Uh, Does God not care about evil? What prompted God to relent? Those are significant questions. But however we answer them, I think the remarkable thing about this uh, little bit is not how God relents, but the fact that he does. Nineveh does not deserve God's compassion. They know they don't deserve his compassion. They're not confident that he will be compassionate. And yet God is compassionate. So if you're here this evening again, and just feeling perhaps a little bit beyond God's mercy, like you're too bad and God's too good. I reckon God's uh, treatment of Nineveh gives a lot of comfort, doesn't it? Uh, if Nineveh could commit war crimes, pursue cruelty and love violence and yet be saved, I think there's a bit of hope there for all of us, isn't there? So if you're here feeling out of reach of God but wanting to know, I'd encourage you, I reckon there's a whole bunch of people here who'd love to have a chat with you about that uh, and Uh, certainly the pastors would as well. So if that's you, grab a friend, uh, grab a pastor, and just say, I'd like to talk about that mercy thing from the talk. It sounded interesting. Back to the story again. Um, When Nineveh was shown mercy, I wonder how you felt. I think it's certainly uh, somewhat surprising, but in many ways I reckon it reads like a good news story, right? These evil uh, men and women have realised what they've done, they've begged for mercy, they've found it. It's pretty heartwarming stuff, isn't it? It's, it's great. You go, oh, that's cool. And then uh, at this point, we hear from Jonah, and he doesn't think it's cool. And so we're at surprise three, Jonah rages. Chapter four, verse one, uh, this is talking about God relenting. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. It's hard, actually. Uh, the word very, <laughs> it's, it's kind of saying Jonah really thought this was a bad thing. God's compassion angers Jonah and you might even say that God, Jonah thought that God's compassion here was an evil thing. It was abhorrent to him and so he prays and I think there's a real anger in what he prays here. He says, isn't this what I said Lord when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. I think that's the tone. These words, I reckon, are the most important in the book, actually. Uh, If you want to understand Jonah, this is the two sentences to go to. And we learn two big things from what Jonah says here. Uh, First of all, we get our first real description of what God is like in Jonah. We've actually we've seen God in action quite a lot. We've seen that God is a God who's willing to show mercy, but here we see that put into words. And Jonah acknowledges God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. He doesn't like it, but he realizes that that's what God is. Now, Jonah here, uh, I think, is quoting from another part of the Bible. This is not a new teaching in the Old Testament. It's something that we've seen before, but Jonah's fleshing it out. Uh, And I think Jonah is actually taking us back to Exodus 34. And so if you grab your Bibles, uh, we're going to go there together and just have a look at uh, where Jonah is quoting from in his prayer. So Exodus 34, it's right at the start of the Bible on page 127. page 127 Exodus 34 and we're going to go verse 6 and 7 uh, now the background to this is that uh, God here is introducing himself to his people and to Moses uh, this is uh, God uh, explaining really for the first time what he's like to his people uh, there are new people that he's just rescued and he's telling them about himself And so what is God like? Well, he says, uh, verse 6 and 7, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation." Now, I think it's likely that Jonah was alluding to these verses as he prays. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, isn't there, between Jonah's prayer and those verses. You notice, though, that there was a second part in Exodus 34 that, uh, that Jonah didn't uh, mention, and that's God's revelation that he is a compassionate God, but also a just and a fair God, a God who does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, why does Jonah leave out that second bit about God's justice? It might be because he doesn't like that, but I think the opposite is actually true. I think Jonah leaves that bit out because that's the part of God that that Jonah knows about and understands and they're on the same page about. Uh, Jonah doesn't need to talk about the fact that God's just because he's just cried out over Nineveh that they're about to be destroyed. He knows about that. Uh, God knows about that. The bit that he has an issue with is God's compassion. And that leads us to the second thing that we learn in these verses, and that is that Jonah's anger at God's compassion is in fact the reason that he did not want to go to Nineveh in the very first place. This is quite a big reveal in the story. Uh, Actually, it's one of those moments in the book that you kind of have to go right back to chapter one and and reread it and rethink through it again. Jonah's saying, what has been driving me since chapter one, verse two and three all that time is a fear, God, that you would do something like this, that you'd show mercy. And so Jonah ran away from God, not because he was afraid of God's justice, not because he was afraid of what the Ninevites might do to him. He ran away because he was afraid of God's mercy. And importantly, that feeling has not changed for Jonah, even after the experience in the fish. In chapter 1, he did not want to go to Nineveh, because he didn't want God to show mercy. In chapter 4, he went to Nineveh, but he still doesn't want God to show mercy. I think that helps us understand what happened when Jonah went uh, to Nineveh in obedience to God's word. While he has been obedient in a a limited sense, a superficial sense, having had this experience in the fish, his basic heart attitude um, mindset Really hasn't changed. He's still out of step with God. He's still unwilling to go along with what God has uh, intended for Nineveh. And so he says, I would rather die than see your mercy upon these people. You know, I think when did Jonah have a near death experience in the book? Uh, Well, he's had one recently, hasn't he? I think Jonah's saying, I wish God that I was still at the bottom of the ocean and that you hadn't sent the fish. Because that would actually be better than seeing what you've got in store for these people. At this point, God uh, responds to Jonah. And we haven't heard God speak much, and so it's significant when he does speak. And God says, is it right for you to be angry? Once again, we see here God's kindness to Jonah. Even Jonah is not yet beyond God's compassion And God's question actually gives Jonah a chance to turn around, to to repent. Now in some sense the answer to God's question is obvious. You go, no, of course it's not right for Jonah to be angry. But I just want to uh, reflect on the question that God asks for a moment. Is it right for Jonah to be angry? My guess is that it would be right for Jonah to be confused but not angry. The problem with Jonah's anger is that it It takes who God is and it pits uh, different uh, attributes of God, different parts of God's character against each other. Jonah says, uh, I like the fact that you're just God, but I really don't like the fact that you're compassionate and I'd much rather have this God than that God. Jonah is out of step with God. But perhaps it would be fair for Jonah to be confused because I think there is a genuine tension here. Uh, How is it that Nineveh's evil can be overlooked does God not care about evil does God not care about the fact that they've been off uh, crushing nations slaughtering people will God let their evil go on forever unchecked and Jonah 3 and 4 doesn't answer this question uh, it simply shows that God, on the one hand, is concerned enough about his evil to send Jonah and warn their destruction, and at the same time, willing to be compassionate on those who ask for help. So to really answer whether God's compassion overrules his justice or kind of trumps it, we need to jump forward uh, in the story of the Bible to the death of Jesus, And that's where we see, actually, the way that God's justice and his compassion go together. And so we're going to do one more Bible flick. Uh, So grab your Bibles again, and we're going to go to Romans chapter 3. That is towards the end of your Bible, on page 1,604. If you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're in good territory. A little bit further after that. Uh, 1,604, Romans chapter 3 we're going to read from verse 23 to 26 verse 23 it says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god you notice that right he's he's saying who is evil actually in a sense all people all people fall short of god's standards but verse 24 all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by christ jesus god presented christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith and this is the part we want to focus on he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished and he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in jesus and I just want to point out particularly the last bit of that verse that talks about God being just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And I think that's actually dealing with the question that we're asking. How can God be just and compassionate? Someone who says to the guilty person, you're not guilty. That's what justification is. And the answer to that question, how can God be just and compassionate, is back in verse 24 that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to be received by faith. I think what that means is that the justice that Nineveh deserved, the evil that Nineveh had committed and its consequences, was put out on Jesus as he went through death and the judgment of God at the cross. They are... they in a sense when they believed the word of God trusted in God's promise a promise that was heading towards what God would do in his son and the consequence of their evil and of all human evil was born by Jesus as they believed in that promise as they trusted it they received what God was going to do in Jesus when Jesus died he bore the world's evil and ours. What that means is that anyone like the Ninevites who responds to Jesus by putting their confidence in him has had their evil punished. I think that makes you appreciate the cross, doesn't it, actually? That Jesus went through uh, the kind of punishment that the vilest and the most wicked of human beings deserved for our sake. Anyone who trusts in Jesus has had their evil punished. Anyone who rejects Jesus needs to bear the consequences of their own evil. And so is Jonah right to be angry that God is compassionate? No. Uh, Jonah takes God's, uh, his compassion and his justice and he pits them against each other. But God who promised to be both those things shows us in Jesus that he can be merciful and just. And that those things go together as God was just and just and bore that himself so we could receive his compassion. Sadly, though, uh, Jonah didn't heed that that gentle question. And so verse uh, 5, he he sits himself down on the hill above Nineveh, and you can kind of imagine him there with his binoculars out, looking down, waiting for fire to fall from heaven. And so we're at point 6. And uh, Jonah here is out in the hot sun, probably in the desert, and God is kind enough to make a plant grow up. And Jonah is pretty happy about that. He's, he's, he loves the plant. He thinks it's great that he has shade. And then God sends a worm to eat the plant and it dies. And God also sends some bad weather Jonah's way. And Jonah is devastated. Now, if you thought uh, Jonah was just an emotionally neutral kind of guy who didn't really let his feelings out, uh, you see at this point, that's not true. Jonah has feelings, they're just focused on his own comfort. And so Jonah again protests the loss of his shady plant. It would be better for me to die than to live. And again, God responds gently, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah's bold enough to talk back, yes it is. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. At this point we get the punchline, verse 10 and 11. But the Lord said, "Uh, you've been concerned about this plant though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? What's, uh, What's God teaching Jonah in this final section? There's a lovely image here of God as the gardener of Nineveh. God says Jonah did not tend or grow the plant. But if you think about it, this is what God has been doing for Nineveh, isn't it? Uh, God's their creator, their maker, and God is the gardener of Nineveh. These are his people, his creatures, even the animals. And he's watered them and tended them, and he knows and cares for them. And so the fact that Jonah cares more about his little shady plant than about these 120,000 fellow creatures is ludicrous, isn't it? And at this point, there's there's kind of an element of satire. You you read it and you think, ha, that's kind of funny, isn't it? Uh, Is it right to care more for a plant than 120,000 people? Of course not. But like all good satire, uh, the challenge of the book is that we laugh at Jonah's absurd anger and his grumpiness and his tantrums. And we think, that's, that's kind of funny. And then you think, oh, yeah, I kind of do that too as well, don't I? And so uh, the question that I want to leave you with is, what is your shady plant? Uh, it's an odd question, is it? What's your shady plant? Uh, what is the measly, absurdly small comfort that you'd prefer to hang on to than to see precious people saved? For the the purpose of satire uh, let me satire myself for a sec and tell you about my own shady plant Uh, i can think of a number of conversations that i've had with uh, people who aren't christians family and friends and i would say uh, outside of interacting with them yes i really want to see these people know jesus and yet uh, when we're actually talking at say the family barbecue and uh, a topic comes up that might give me a little window into talking about jesus in some kind of way I find myself getting all tense, and my my hackles rise, and my heart starts racing, and I get sweaty, and uh, I start looking around for other conversations to join. And all of a sudden, I find myself desperate to refill my glass of water, struck by a sudden, unquenchable thirst that requires my immediate exit from this uncomfortable conversation. And if I don't get that glass of water, I'm sure that I'll uh, completely die from this unforeseen lack of water. I wonder if you've had an experience like that. <laughs> and I look back on these conversations, and I think, how absurd. Right? How badly would it have gone? Would I have been struck from the will and, banned and banished from all future family gatherings? Probably not. And I think, I'm a minister. I've been training for six years for this moment. If anyone can do it, I'm supposed to be able to do it. You see, I'm not thirsty, I don't really need to talk to someone else. I just don't want any conflict or mild discomfort. And I think that's my shady plan, Uh, my preference for comfortable conflict-free social interaction where everyone happily and jauntily discusses their favorite topics without any need for uncomfortable moments. The question I need to ask myself is Is my shady plant more precious than the eternal destinies of my family, friends, whoever it is? Um, of course not. Uh, what is your shady plant? What is the, the measly comfort that you'd love to hold on to but actually need to let go for the sake of precious people who need to be saved? What would it look like for you to walk in step with the God who is so compassionate and just that he gave his son? What would it look like for you to let those worms eat your shady plant and to stop sitting on the hill overlooking Nineveh and go down and be with them, sharing God's grace? To wrap up, I just want to finish that story about the IFES in Rwanda after the genocide. And I wonder if you can imagine trying to Live as a Christian in a context which is so divided. Uh, These people, especially the Tutsis, had deep reasons to long for God's judgment upon the many people who'd committed vile acts on their neighbours and friends. They had every reason to abhor any suggestion of mercy, let alone God's mercy, and they had good reasons to withhold the grace of God that they'd received from their enemies. But as people who were in step with their gracious God through Jesus, uh, that's not what they did. Uh, This guy Antoine, uh, one of the surviving leaders, became a refugee uh, and uh, spent a while traveling around with his family in fairly difficult circumstances. And after a while he received an offer from the wider IFES uh, Christian movement to leave with his family uh, to take a sabbatical in Wales. You can think, you know, there's a lot of good reasons to do that. Uh, Here's a guy who, out of anyone, needs a break. Rather than embracing that shady plant, Antoine declined. And he said, If I do not share my people's pain, neither can I share with them in the joy of the gospel. In 2002, the Reborn Student Movement held its first national camp, and Hutu and Tutsi students both attended And over a series of meetings, they heard talks and they joined hands and prayed together that such violence would never happen again. And they were able to talk about being one in Christ. The aftermath of the conflict saw deep spiritual hunger on campus, and this group who were in step with their compassionate God were ready to feed the hungry. And they ran daily prayer meetings that saw 500 to 1,000 people coming to join them in prayer. Friends, we have a God who is compassionate and just. He's willing to relent and to forgive, even on the evil. And he was so willing to do that that he gave his son. And the big question we need to ask is, are we in step with him? And I want to lead us in prayer that we would be. So will you pray with me? Our gracious God, we want to thank you so much for the compassion that you have poured out on us evil people in Jesus Christ, that you offer it to even the vilest of sinners. And Father, we want to pray that we would trust you and that we would be like you, showing compassion to all people. In Jesus' name, amen.